Welcome back to the EXP podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Luan. Hello. And we have a great episode this this whatever period of time it's been, um, where we're going to be chatting a bit about tech art and what tech artists do. Uh, we have two guests with us, Nina and Kai, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So Nina, do you want to introduce yourself first? Yeah. Hi, I'm Nina. I'm a technical environment artist. And uh, I'm Kai, and I'm also a te- technical artist, technical environment artist, uh, currently at Shapeform. Awesome. So I think tech art is probably one of those roles that a lot of people even within the industry, are uh, perhaps a little bit less clear on on what you guys do. Um, so I think to start us off, it'd be be good to just kind of go over what what is a tech artist. So what is it the kind of stuff that you do day to day? Kai, do you want to start us off? Sure. I guess it really depends on the studio, of course. Most of my experience has been making tools for environment artists or for anybody really that needed. Um, in an interface with the actual game world, basically, uh, finding objects or maybe automating uh, stuff in the world. Uh, and next to that, of course, also maybe shaders, uh, also performance profiling. It's a bit of, um, I guess, the loose ends that environment art and programmers or artists and programmers don't really want to pick up or don't have the shared knowledge of picking up. I guess that's what tech art kind of fills in. Yeah, it's kind of an in-between role very much picking up uh, the in-between work and also making the special tools and special shaders and things to make the, the game really work and sing, if you can call it, yeah. Yeah. At what point do you find that you differentiate, say, uh, differentiate yourself from a tools programmer? Or is it dependent on like the size of the company? I guess my experience with tools programmers is that they work more on like engine functionality, like full features for the actual actual engine. But mm-hmm. tech artist works mostly in the context of the game or the project, I would say. They make specific tools to make the project go faster, like the workflow for it. Well, uh, yeah. I would say uh, it's a lot about helping the artists and supporting the artists with their work. So yeah. a lot of the tools that are made are specifically for uh, better workflows and better uh, support to make the workload generally faster, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, things making things faster, but also just having quick iteration with environment artists, right? Or with any artist yeah, for that yeah. matter. Uh, depends, of course, per company. Some companies also have uh, technical animators, uh, but other companies, for example, have the technical animator like role basically integrated into the technical art role itself. Yeah, there's so many different sides to it. I think that there's riggers, there's shader artists, there's um, optimization, there's just tools and so many different things that a tech artist could possibly do. And it's you never meet one that does everything. It's always every single artist at every single company does something completely different. Yep. Where do you find yourself sitting then in terms of like teams? Do you find yourself closer to the art team or do you work more sort of alongside programming or engine tooling kind of stuff or where, I mean, I guess it's going to depend, like you said, on on the specifics of what you're doing, but where do you guys kind of find yourself sitting? So from my experience, it's been, it really depends on what, what at that moment is really important, right? So which tool or which like, 
thing we need to, we need to focus on. If it's performance, for example, you're often working more with the artists to get them to to see where something is maybe not as performant as it could be and where they need to spend a little bit ti- a little bit of time to, to optimize more. But if you're working on a tool, for example, you're probably more talking with uh, tool uh, programmers or uh, mm-hmm. tool engineers and, and they, yeah, you basically talk more with them to get the tool to the standard that they wanted or needed to be for the editor. Maybe that you even need their insight or their site for some engine interfacing like system or something like that. So it really depends, yeah. I guess. Yeah. From, from my point of view, I work a lot of uh, a lot of my time with the artists because I I'm kind of a environment technical artist, so um, I spend a lot of my time kind of on the art side and just supporting that. But it can absolutely go the way more programming, where it's like it's a bit of an art thing but it's supporting the programmers as well. Yep, definitely. It's also really, um, how do you call it? The um, Some tech artists are more like on the art side and some tech artists are more on the technical side, basically. <laughs> if you can say yeah. it like that. Like some may work on stuff like, uh, how do you call it? Like let's say foliage, for example, right? It's a very tech art mm-hmm. heavy like asset type to work on. Um, because the whole environment needs to be made around it. The whole like scattering or placement of foliage is a is a whole like field of research on its own, uh, or in a in a technical sense. Uh, but also the creation of, of foliage assets. You, you're not only sticking like branches together and and uh, leaves together, but also you need to really de- determine like the for animation, for example, like pivots or weights of each branch and the offsets and all that kind of stuff. It's also really important to think about. So there's a lot of tech art involved there as well. Within tech art, um, I'm always curious to hear different uh, opinions here uh, from different people, but like, what do you guys um, sort of prefer uh, within the discipline? Do you prefer doing shaders? Do you prefer doing more tooling? Do you prefer, you know, whatever optimization? Like what, what, what's you guys' kind of take on that? Let me think. Actually, like doing like pretty much all of it, uh, but I guess if I have to pick up a favorite, it would probably be more along the lines of more the artistic side of the technical art side, <laughs> uh, stuff like foliage, shaders, uh, that kind of stuff. Just because you can experiment and then just play around, think of like really crazy systems maybe to optimize something or to to get uh, a certain result that normally would be very would be quite expensive, but you can do now in a more optimized sense, uh, that kind of stuff, right? Uh, at least that would be for me, I think, the uh, the side I would choose inside Descartes. Yeah, I've always been kind of in between. Um, I've always liked uh, kind of switching back and forth. I think I have a tendency to get bored very easily. So um, oh, yes, I, I enjoy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just enjoy kind of, discovering new things and especially kind of working out problems and it's more about kind of the the mindset and just the process of it uh just figuring out something that is difficult that the the rest of the team just needs help with i find that like pretty rewarding as well just to be helpful to the team so whatever is needed really do you find that that's always been the case like 
Well, I, let's take a step back, I guess. Like when you were getting into art or uh, programming, did you know I'm going to be a tech artist and um, I like whatever shaders or I like problem solving. So that's why I'm going to be a tech artist. Oh, no, no. <laughs> um, I had no idea until about halfway into my third year of uni. And then suddenly became kind of an option because I kind of discovered that it was. And I think I was actually talking to Kay and a bunch of other people. And we were like, oh, maybe I should do that because I kind of done programming in the past. And uh, it just kind of fit to what I liked. A bunch of the mathematical and the artistic side kind of combined together, right? Yeah, I think it's a pretty similar story for me as well. Like, um, I started out more in the animation and then went into prop and at some point more into environment art. But I think, so one thing, especially with Unreal, uh, that, that you learn a lot as an environment artist is that uh, you learn, of course, like trim sheets and all that kind of stuff. But then also going more advanced into, uh, let's say, a blueprint system to place assets for you, that kind of stuff, right? Uh, that kind of... At some point, I spent more time in making those things than actually making the environment. And at that point, I was like, okay, there's probably more my like lane to go on to, to make the tooling and the the systems that help artists put stuff together. Next step, yeah. like helping people, of course, right? Uh, you're constantly, uh, especially on, on Discord servers, uh, on EXP, for example, I was constantly in the Deckard channel or in any channel for that matter and helping people with... Uh, their performance issues or some shader issue they had. And uh, that, that also really reinforced that idea that the um, tech art was probably something for me. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a support role in itself. Yeah. It's, like, it's supporting the rest of the team, really. Exactly. And you find that like in the future, you could go more heavily into art or programming or do you find that you'll probably always be a tech artist like what what attracts you guys the most like you do you see yourself being for example a rendering engineer or an ai programmer or hell i don't know you want to be a, a foliage artist in the future you know um yeah i could see myself exploring other areas i don't know if i would hmm, it's, it's hard currently i'm still like very much enjoying tech art and what it like encompasses and that kind of stuff but I have also been dabbling more and more into graphics engineering lately, making my own toy like render engine and uh, like playing around with custom ray tracers for a while now, both in Unreal and, and outside just in C++. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of sites you can go on. I've also experimented so a little bit with machine learning, for example, in Python to get that, to, to make some tools with that, right? Uh, it's really just exploratory at this point, but it may turn out as something more bigger. Will be cool to see. Yeah, I think the same for me. Um, I've kind of always, I've done uh, a lot of programming before, and I've done a lot of art as well. But I think I always be somewhere in between. But still, I'd like to explore a lot of the more interesting areas and like more new technology as well that's coming out. Oh yeah, definitely, especially stuff. Yeah. With like, um, especially now, Unreal 5 is coming out with all the, or has been out for a few weeks now, mm -hmm. with all the new, like, it's basically a whole new paradigm in, in how we set up environments, right? Uh, so that's going to be interesting how uh, 
how we're gonna like make tools, make assets, the whole workflow, the whole role of a technical artist, yeah. how that fits in there. Yeah, as long as I'm learning, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> it's just finding out. That's that's the most fun stuff. Just yes. <laughs> constantly going to Google and then going to some obscure um, like blog post from somebody in a language that you don't know, using <laughs> Google Translate to translate the blog post and, and finding some like little nuggets of information that you can't find anywhere else is really satisfying as well. Feels like a treasure hunt sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's a lot of fun. All good tech art knowledge is contained within blogs with silly names. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yep. The amount of information I found just on like, it's like banana coffin 83. And it's just like, this is the, <laughs> the prime resource of cloud shaders or something. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you kind of opened the, the UE5 can of worms a bit. So I guess we can, we can jump in. So I think. A lot of people, um, even sort of outside of the industry, have seen the UE5 announcement stuff and a lot of the new technologies that they've been sort of pushing and and demonstrating, um, especially in that kind of early on demo. And uh, you've already sort of mentioned that it's quite different to UE4. Um, you've got things like Nanite and Lumen, which, I mean, Nanite alone completely changes the game in terms oh, of yeah. <laughs> how, um, you know, environments are built. So how, how, as tech artists, how do you kind of adapt to massive swings in technology like that um, when something like Unreal 5 comes out and it's it's cutting-edge technology and, and there isn't huge wealth of resource about these new things? How, how do you go about mm. kind of keeping yourselves up to date or learning how these new system works and how you can, you know, what, how you can either transfer your knowledge or... or learn the yeah the new systems yeah um for me it, it does help that unreal 5 when was it announced probably last year around this time or even earlier perhaps mm -hmm. i don't know um but because it has been such a long like open access thing where we had early access early access to then Unreal 5 preview one and preview two and then now like the final release there was already such a long time with a lot of stuff available, a lot of information available, uh, that it became really, not actually quite, well, I wouldn't say easy, but uh, there a lot of information that is key, that's very important, is already out there, especially in the documentation. Uh, and then there's, of course, a whole wealth of information on Twitter from the Epic devs themselves. And then stuff that people find themselves on Twitter. Uh, and of course, the obscure blogs, because they always have the most useful nuggets of information or the, the most, what do you call it? The most minute, but very important context. Yeah, yeah I'd say there is um, also a lot of trial and error and just always adapting to new technology. You got to um, make sure yeah. to see if it works with your current systems and see what you can do with the new ones really as tech artists we kind of um it's a, it kind of in our nature just to explore and uh, um test out things and profile them and just see what we can do with them yeah like when an engine crashes we're probably like we won't be happy <laughs> but it is 
interesting because you get the crash log and some information with yes. it. So you can go through it and see what happens behind the scenes when you crash the editor or something like that. So I guess for me, that's at least the, like the, the main thing when a new version comes out or a new plugin comes out or even the Unreal 5.1 uh, branch that is now uh, public. Well, it, yeah, it's public. It's, it's on GitHub. Um, that one, like, you can just download it, compile it, build it. It'll take a while, but once it's running, you can play around and see what they added and keep kind of an eye on, on what they're going to do. You're basically at the forefront, you have the front seat regarding that, which is pretty cool. Do you get time professionally to explore um, new technologies like Unreal 5, or do you find yourself spending, you know, doing that more so in your free time outside of work? A mix of both, I would say. Um, it, it, of course, really depends. Like, if your studio is migrating from 4 to 5, then you're definitely going to look at some aspects of 5 very carefully yeah. because the whole workflow depends on it and it can take weeks, if not months, to do that correctly. Uh, so, you're definitely taking a lot of care on the job itself. Uh, and next to that, of course, for personal projects, you're also kind of just looking around and seeing, eyeing a bit what, what, what is available. Yeah, largely depends on if you're kind of uh, allowed and your studio uses it. Um, you can, some studios I know allow like personal development and they allow you to uh, kind of explore different programs and stuff. But yeah, it just depends really. It's the role in general for environment artists, just to say it depends. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything's in it depends. In terms of uh, the difference in UE4 to UE5, what are kind of the biggest biggest changes that you've seen uh, on and kind of how things work? Perhaps just beyond things like just Nanite and Lumen, but are there are there kind of bigger yeah differences in there between the two? So I, I think uh, the whole geometry overhaul almost it's like this whole basically. The one thing that we saw early on was the modeling tools, but behind there is a whole layer of what's called geometry scripting. And that seems like a extremely powerful tool to make a lot of really cool stuff uh, automatically with some tools. And I can see that being a really big part in the future, maybe even more than Lumen, for example. Lumen is pretty niche in some aspects, only really high-end AAA uh, like environments can really use Lumen, I would say. It's a very expensive. So I think the geometry scripting is definitely one of those that we can see a lot of cool stuff coming from. Yeah, I'd also say uh, the world partition ones. Oh yeah, uh, definitely. For open worlds, it's going to be a huge game changer for level streaming especially. Um, it will probably be a lot different than the current setup studios have. So I'm looking forward to see how that develops, really. Uh, see what other studios end up using uh, the te technology, really. And how does that differ from, or what's what's different about the way that UE5 handles level streaming? I guess the main uh, difference is that the grid, like normally you would use level streaming, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which is just separate levels that you load in or load out, depending on distance or that kind of stuff. Um, 
but with the whole world partition system you're you have much finer resolution in this um in the sense basically uh each world partition grid cell can be a few hundred meters and if you're looking away from them or if you're moving towards them you can switch between different like streaming like setups almost for each uh, grid cell so you can really fine grain or you have really fine grain control over the streaming process i would say with uh, world partition now nice that yeah that sounds like it's going to open up some interesting opportunities also um one thing I saw recently was that, uh, for example, Houdini Engine locks into this system very well, where you can attach a, a HDA, like a Houdini Digital Actor, to a um, partition cell, and it can process everything in that cell, basically. So you can create very like um, dynamic systems where if you change something in one cell, it can automatically update stuff re- like using that. Um, so you're not running stuff over the whole world, but only on specific parts. Uh, and next to that, um, well, in one of the videos for World Partition, they also explain how the hierarchical LOD system is linked up with that. Basically, at let's say at a certain distance, for example, all the assets that are inside one single tile, they get put together in a single mesh or well, basically a single mesh, it's probably a bit more cut up depending on some material parameters, I guess. That that really optimizes a lot of stuff automatically uh, just because you're not evaluating every single asset for every single distance. You're now doing it for a whole tile in the world, which can be maybe hundreds of meters like in size. So that also really helps, I guess, in, in, in performance and flexibility for the artist because a lot of optimization is done automatically almost in that sense. Yeah, it takes away a lot of the having to instance a lot of actors and just optimize them. And yeah, a lot of the tools that we ended up uh, using in UE4 will kind of probably fade away, I'd say. Um, And it will be kind of more automatic going forward. Uh, We will see how that ends up working. Yeah, definitely. I think it's good to see the sort of progression of um, automating some or being able to automate some of the more fiddly bits. I think a lot of, I mean, even now, a lot of studios are, are using, you know, automated LED tools and things because um, it just doesn't make sense to have your art team spend huge amounts of time on um, very it really interesting manual tasks. You, you just can't automatically load a custom normal hard surface asset. It just doesn't yeah. work. There, um, there certainly are exceptions, right? To, so there's yeah. a fair few exceptions. Um, but, uh, you know, if if people can get together and, and explore um, ways to fix that, to come up with new and in, in, innovative solutions on how to automate these processes that are usually very, 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 very difficult, um, I mean, yeah, that's incredible, right? Like, I mean, Nanite is an example of that, of uh, uh, completely reinventing something in a way that, um, you know, it changes, it changes everything. And it's it's quite liberating to see these kinds of uh, technology innovations happening because one guy had his passion project of uh, 
liberating people from Bogland, you know, like. So one thing I am really curious about is how Nanite works together with this whole geometry scripting stuff now, because although geometry scripting seems really like you can process a ton of data, I'm not sure if you can do a lot of complex stuff yet, but we'll see how that like expands over the next few updates with Unreal. Uh, I suspect that they're probably working on a lot of really cool stuff for geometry scripting and like, uh, for example, the one thing that did uh, like spark this interest for me was the, I think one of the epic guys on, on Twitter showed a video or a gif of how they used two nanite meshes and intersected them and then used the boolean operator to get the intersection or to cut out one part from another. And that seems to be really fast, especially for the amount of polygons that are that were in there. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, there was even uh, I think a week ago or two weeks ago, somebody was um, had this whole tool where they where they had basically a gun, like a laser gun, and they played the game and they just cut out a part in the wall and it fell. It like automatically got um, collision and all that kind of stuff. It just fell outward, so you could just walk through the wall. It's really uh, really interesting nice. to see. So there's already it seems that they are really going for fast geometry processing which may be used in real time, but even even not, if it's not fast enough for real time, it will probably be a really interesting thing to see how we can use it in combination with Nanite to maybe process a lot of meshes for something or, I don't know, uh, combine objects, maybe at a certain distance, for example. Uh, yeah, let, let's take that H-slot example with a real partition. If at a certain distance, all those nanite meshes are separate, they are counted as separate instances, right? And each instance, like it's not a lot of data, it's a single transform, but it compounds and those transform arrays can get pretty large. So the, the, the CPU side evaluation of draw costs can get pretty high as well. Uh, but that can be significantly reduced by combining them all into a single larger nanite mesh, which lots on its own which is basically a lot of a whole world section, if you can imagine it that way. Uh, that, that could bring some pretty cool like stuff, I would say. Now you touched on it um, earlier, as well as uh, in just now when you were describing the situation. Um, it seems to me um, that Unreal is becoming a um, go-to for everything, right? Like you can do your modeling here, you can do, your, maybe in the future you can do your texturing here, maybe in the future you can do your um, sculpting here. Um, but you can definitely like, uh, with things like um, the Quixel marketplace and and yeah. all of that there, it really is sort of the, the package that um, will very clearly be able to do almost anything in the future. So forget your blenders, forget your substance painters. Um, in that sense, do you feel at any given point that a tool that is so, um, I, I say a tool, obviously Unreal is not exactly a tool, but let's call it a tool, um, a tool that's so jack of all trades, do you find that it, it is true that it doesn't particularly shine in any specific situation? Um, or do you find that what it does shine in, it is very good at, but everything else it is average at? Mm. 
So this one is probably really dependent. Like this question is really, the answer to this question is really dependent on in what context you look at it, I guess. Um, I think Epic is probably going very much for like a single tool to create this metaverse thing that has been very popular lately, right? So just putting everything in there so people can create the models, create the whole like games with it, uh, that kind of stuff. This is, I think, uh, Unreal is going to be a very large like tool in this this dynamic. Um, so I think Unreal is in a pretty strong position there, uh, just from the get go already. A lot of engines that would need to be there or would need to compete would need to add a lot of functionality to to be on par. Yeah, I think it's the kind of aim is to make game dev kind of accessible to people who can't do it all. Uh, A lot of smaller indie games can now come in and take assets and just build a game out of the things that are available. So I think it it gives a huge power to especially smaller studios um, to like give them like very high quality uh, tools and assets and everything really. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, if you if you think from the um, I call it the the perspective of let's say you have a um, an environment or a prop artist that needs to make like a really high resolution model and then bake it down to a low resolution model, then even make more lower resolution models for the LEDs. Uh, mm-hmm. That whole workflow you can in principle just use the high poly now. It adds a lot of data, of course, but you can do some like small down uh, how do you call it. Uh, reduction of polygons and then you're still there so but in yeah. the situation where you add um all these new ways of creating geometry uh, these geometry modeling tools within unreal um and they're very good and they're clearly pushing for for people to use um these tools and they're developing it quite a lot like release by release but you find that like i mean this is never going to be as good as a3ds max or a blender so it might end up being underutilized and therefore forgotten in the future, even though it's being developed quite quite, quite thoroughly now. So what... I think it's, it, it add, it's more of an addition to the workflow at the moment than an actual yeah. replacement. It is now. Yeah. And there may be the, the goal to replace it fully. That, that's possible, of course. I think for the coming, like, maybe five to ten years, we're probably going to see it more as a you're working in Max Maya Blender or whatever, right? And then bring it to Unreal and then you're like, oh, wait, uh, I forgot to add vertex colors to my mesh or something. And on the, or the custom normals, or uh, maybe I need to merge two assets, but I don't want to go all the way back to Unreal, Lotus 2 or, or to a Trace Max, Lotus 2 separate assets, combine them into a single one or do some processing there. I think it's yeah. just, meant to shove a lot of the work into the engine itself, where quick iteration is of pretty most importance in in actual development. Uh, Yeah, the way I see it is just like, it's lower versions of the tools that we already have, like it's still going to be the optimal way to make it in Max and make it in Painter, right? Um, But these tools, they'll be really helpful for either uh, smaller devs or just as Kai said, just tweaking and um, post-fact, just 
changing uh, little bits and little pieces that you need uh, further down the line, right? Yeah. Yes, the less back and forth that you need to do in in and out of the engine, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the easier things become, and because that kind of stuff scales up as well, right? Like, oh uh, yeah, in a bigger team, yeah. like if I work on a model and I put it into the game, and then I've got a designer who's going to put that into a level and a gameplay programmer who's going to set that up to work and whatever, whatever. And then if it goes to all those people and then they find out, you know, maybe I've made a lever or something and it's not, it doesn't work with animation because it clips with the hand and then it's got to come all the way back to me. But if you can have these tools, someone could go in and, you know, they could do the resizing of that in engine. Maybe yeah, exactly. just shrink it down a bit there. Um, and no longer it will, you know, it doesn't clip through the hand anymore. And suddenly, you know, it's a task that, can be fixed by someone who probably is, you know, the the animator or the designer or whoever can fix it rather than it having to come all the way back to me Yeah, when it's kind of three steps away from, from what I'm doing now. But is yeah. your source data now not incorrect? Well, yeah. So you are, if you are, if your source is from outside, of course, you're editing, you're basically post-processing your data, uh, which on one end, is a bit more annoying. On the other hand, you can ex- export an FBX out of Unreal again. So you do kind of have this more flexible control. Um, I don't know if how like if the FBX keeps a lot of the data, maybe you have some custom FBX data that you can't export with the Unreal functionality where you, when you like migrate or export an FBX uh, back out again. Or any data, for that matter, uh, audio or, or that kind of stuff. Um, well, the engine triangulates the data, right? So it doesn't re-export it uh, quadrangulated. Um, but you'll, also, you might be using a heavily modifier workflow um, situation where it exports a final mesh based on a lot of proceduralism. Um, but then if you do further tweaks, you know, like it, it could could prove to be more troublesome than anything. Yeah, I think if you... If you have really fine, like, um, how do you say this? If somebody made an asset and you send it to Unreal and you're doing some post-processing there, and at some point you find out, like, oh, uh, the tools in Unreal are, are not sufficient for this or they're not, uh, they, I, I can't achieve what I want to achieve with the tools here, uh, and I need to send it back. All the processing you've done is removed at that point, and you need to redo them again, which is annoying. On the other hand, that's already kind of the case in some parts. Yeah, I mean, you could re-import an asset and it could still have the same metadata and stuff, um, like all the lots. Sometimes it works, yeah. It really depends, I guess, because if if you're if you're doing like geometry scripting for example right or modeling inside unreal then yeah. that overrides the imported data mm-hmm. so when you re-import again you imp- re-import the original fbx which overrides all the stuff you've done inside unreal again so uh, th- that's the only like drawback at this point where the processing inside unreal is kind of detached from the whole workflow outside of unreal that is currently the main like method yeah so. I do like a world where um, you could make all um, all kinds of, say, procedural buildings and things like that straight up from inside Unreal with uh, geometry nodes and just, you know, it's highly modifiable and um, iterative. And I think that that kind of 
thing is what Unreal is best at. You know, it's just a high speed of iteration. Oh, yeah, so it's definitely. nice to see it get more and more support in that uh, uh, that sense. To your point about source files, though, Luan, what you're forgetting is that the source for the file is the desktop of someone who left the company two years ago. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> Which is surprisingly often. Or, or yeah. it's not submitted to Perforce, or it's deleted, yeah. or it's... Yeah, or it's stuck it's in gone. some developer folder. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. in a dev folder somewhere. So actually, in, in terms of that, like there is a use to being able to edit things that you maybe don't have the because you can't always guarantee you have the source file um i could imagine with smaller teams you know if they do like more work for higher things where you you know you bring on a freelancer to make you a bunch of character models or a bunch of assets right and then um six months on you want to make some changes but you know you don't you don't have their details or they're not available or whatever you don't need to kind of try and hire a new person to do this when you just want to you know maybe cut the corner of a mesh off or um trim something down or remove the back of something you could do that in engine and not need to to either have those the skills to be able to do the 3d modeling to edit it yourself or even need need the source files if you didn't have those yeah exactly though i think like stuff like editing someone else's models is often done by probably like an artist that is there or by the, the artist that was originally that originally made it themselves um because learning although learning unreal's modeling tools is easier than than they call it uh trees max maya whatever right um i i think at some point it also becomes this very large thing where you have the interface modeling tools, which we saw a lot of recently, uh, but then the whole geometry scripting part is also a big part of it. And you can make some custom tools as well there. So, and a lot of studios do use custom tools. A lot of individual freelance artists probably have custom tools that help them in uh, in their workflows to make things faster, right? And replicating all that can probably be hard, I guess. For some studios yeah i think that's in terms of, of moving over to the newer engines and things that that can definitely be a barrier for um companies i mean if you've if you've already got a bunch of stuff and you're working in unreal 4 maybe you know you think well we'll use unreal 5 on our next project we'll see what we can save or what we can replicate but if you have a proprietary engine suddenly it becomes a lot more difficult especially oh, yeah. if you know, you've got 10, maybe this is 10, 15 years old engine that you've been updating the whole time. You've got layers and layers of, of stuff in there. But yeah. um, it, on the one hand, you don't want to change over because you've got everything there. But also when you're running with so much, I guess, legacy um, code in your engine, it's harder to update things to, to fit with competing with visual trends like it's i imagine if you've got like a 10 year old engine and you're looking at stuff like nanite lumen um you're not gonna be able to make your old engine do this so do you try to update it or make a new one or or do you just swap over and use the newer technology but you do have the freedom because it is your engine you can do whatever you want to it that's true yeah Uh, especially if you have a graphics programmer you can probably re-engineer the the, the rendering side, but it, it does 
uh, how do you call it? it, it, it there's, there's this issue with uh, probably custom engines where there's a lot of maintenance that is required, right? A lot of game studios now that use Unreal basically defer this maintenance to Epic themselves because they have this whole group of engineers and programmers that, that do it for us. Um, and that does not exist with other studios or not at the same scale, I guess. Uh, because there's a single studio almost working on a full, fully on the engine. But that does also present yet another problem. Um, there, I've run into situations before where um, let's say you're using Unreal and you have a, um, a problem with an asset or a tool or something, and um, your main source of um, you know getting something fixed is to uh, go online and submit some sort of ticket, um, and then you're covered by NDAs, or you're like, okay, if they need more information and they ask for it, they're like, so what else can you give us about this this uh, this asset or this tool? You go, nothing. Not allowed to talk <laughs> about it. So it's just a, another level of you know, another company trying to fix things for you when they can't. And, you know, they also have to fix things for you whilst at the same time fixing things for another 200,000 companies that also use the product. It gets very complex. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Especially mm -hmm. if, if the workflow changes or is very different between all the studios, which yeah. for real is like definitely the case. People Whereas if you're, you know, proprietary, it's just like, hey, yeah. this is a problem here. Yeah, no worries. I'll have it fixed by lunchtime. Sweet, thanks. <laughs> I guess the other end of that is that epic have borderline unlimited money right so they can throw it feels like they, they can just throw any number of people and they, and they have some of the best engine programmers um what feels like in the world working on unreal i guess they're they're going to be fixing all the issues that they're they're able to overcome perhaps are bigger than than what you might be able to achieve in your proprietary engine where either You've got engine programmers who have been there a long time, so they're very familiar with the proprietary engine, but perhaps they're not so, you know, they've been working in it a long time, so they're, they're not, their knowledge. I'd actually say it's the opposite because Epic can't uh, customize the engine entirely for your company, only you can. That, that's true, yeah. Also, the, um, the thing is that even though you have a lot of money, it doesn't mean you can get the right people it right because that's a whole different yeah. like well we see it a lot in this industry with uh like vfx artists tech artists or engine or yeah rendering programmers as well like they're very very much in need especially in senior roles getting the right people for your company at the right times is uh it's proven to be very hard at this uh, this time <laughs> yeah they're like unicorns <laughs> So, so I, I can imagine for Epic as well that they they may not they they may not have the people they need to get all the work done that they want to have done for all their clients for all the users of Unreal, um, but that's impossible to say from for me, of course. <laughs> mm, it's just such a big task. Yeah, it does often feel like a lot of the. Um, design of Unreal Engine is very driven by Fortnite's development. Like a lot of the technology and things are things that uh, oh, yeah, definitely. will, you know, will work within Fortnite. And sometimes you'll come to something and be like, why does it 
work this way and not this way because <laughs> this is what was needed for that project or yeah sometimes it's not even like there are certain systems within unreal that you can't even like they, they work in such a specific niche way yeah like some of the like some of the hair shading and stuff in unreal 5 is like this is the way it works um and if you want anything different you've got to you know you've got to add this yourself um so it, it, yeah you, you lose some of that flexibility if you use it's not that you can't add these things but it's not necessarily as easy as it might be if you were using something like more bare bones like unity or a proprietary engine where plugging stuff in is more oh, yeah. the accepted way whereas unreal sort of feels like it, it, it wants you to do things a certain way um, yeah it, it does very much force you uh, in certain ways especially with stuff like um, landscape for example you're basically stuck with the the landscape system and then the whole layer like setup and although that is very useful for probably like 80 to 90 percent of the cases sometimes you really need this custom functionality or just some way to edit the landscape maybe vertex by vertex for example that just yeah. isn't available um so yeah there's there's a lot of stuff to say there as well i guess it's it seems very much like tweaked for Fortnite at the moment, or at least tweaked for such a, such a type of game. Because ultimately, they have a game to make. Exactly, yeah, and it's it their game, not your game, right? And do you remember that back when they, you know, they made games? Oh, <laughs> well, they still do, right? Yeah. Fortnite, <laughs> they make a game. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean that's what tech artists are for, for, for right? To make custom tools. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Well, they make like five billion a year from Fortnite, so can't really yeah. blame them for going all in on that, really. That's also why Epic has a lot of tech artists. Yes. <laughs> They're stealing all the tech artists from the industry. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit here and um, find out more a little bit about how you guys work with other people because um, it's a question I'm, I'm always quite interested in hearing uh, the different opinions on, but like how. How would you deal with a situation where, let's say you're making a tool for whatever foliage, um, <clears throat> foliage placement procedurally, uh, and every single different artist has a different idea of how it should work, uh, and they're all in the foliage team. Of course, they have to come up with a, one single way that it should work. But how, what would you say is the best way to deal in a situation uh, from minor to major where many artists have different opinions? They're all decent opinions. What is your method of finding the best solution for them so what i would do is not ask them what they want but rather like poke a little bit more like um find out what they like really want because uh although like how do you say this P people know what they want to achieve but they don't know how to get there so they're filling the rest with their own ideas right but often those ideas are not very realistic or not in the same line as, as the actual uh, development iteration or, or cycle. So finding what they want and what is currently plausible, that I, I think that's the main difficulty, but also the fun part of working together with other people, especially artists. Uh, because they may want to, they may ask stuff like, uh, I want to place, uh, I want a tool to automatically place finds for me. And like a custom mesh, fine, right? But then you're, as a, as a tech artist, you're thinking like, okay, well, 
uh, I can make a custom mesh, but that's going to be very expensive if, if this tool is being used all over the place because we have custom meshes, like unique meshes all over the environment. So how can we maybe use instancing to, to get the same achieve or the same stuff, right? Uh, so there's a lot of finding out what one party wants, then finding out what is the best approach, and then finding some way to kind of merge those two together to marry them and get that to work well. Yeah, just finding the best approach and finding it so it like it works together in the game as well because you, you can make something really cool, but it can run horribly in the actual game itself. Um, yep. A lot of tutorials suffer from this where it's like, yeah, it works, but it's not going to run in the game. Oh, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, you got to find that balance and the optimization as well has to be kept in mind a lot of time. There's also what you see in a lot now is a lot of artists use Houdini or use like blueprints to do stuff that that normally attack artists will do. Yeah. And they get really good results. Like they get really nice results. But you can see that they they are looking from it from the artistic sense. So performance, for example, is often like a backseat kind of thing. Uh, so they're scattering unique meshes around or they're generating a whole new mesh for something that you probably already have a mesh for and you, you can just reuse there, but then using scattering instead of generating a yeah. new polygons. It's kind of stuff, right? So, and especially on YouTube, you see that a lot, a lot of those artists that, that have really cool and get some really great results, but they don't really work for an actual production environment, I would say. Uh, but that's also not really an issue, I would say. Like, if people actually want to use such a thing in a production environment, there's probably a tech artist there that can help them and, and find a way to, to get that to work, right? Yeah, there's it's a lot about finding like clever solutions to things. Yeah, um, It's good for ideas, I'd say, the tutorials, but yeah, it can't really be copied directly onto the engine. Sadly. <laughs> yeah. Would save a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to touch on something that we haven't really mentioned much yet, but I think comes under your remit. Profiling and performance stuff. So you mentioned about things not running. Um, it, to me, seems like that's often left to the, the tech artist to go through and profile scenes and, and mm -hmm. kind of try to work out mm -hmm. where the big costs are coming from. Um, I, I feel like it's... A lot of environment artists have an idea about what maybe, you know, what, what they think is, is performant or what works well. But for the people listening, first of all, what is profiling and um, what are some areas that you've noticed that kind of have a bigger hit to performance than people might initially think? Do you want to take this one on, Lena? Or should yeah, I? Sure. Uh... So the question, what is profiling? It's essentially taking uh, our minimum spec machine right and seeing what uh we can get away with basically um <laughs> so can we hit the minimum fps can we hit the minimum uh run on this machine um and can we do it so it doesn't uh give the user a bad experience let's say um so things like lag spikes and uh, FPS drops, um, there's obviously some a little bit are acceptable sometimes, but uh, it's generally like you want 99% of it to be 
uh, within those specs. But what I've learned, at least over my past year of them of doing a lot of performance profiling, is that although you also look at often the the more like you take a, a base platform, let's say a PS5 or PS4 or an X or an, a PC with D specs like that kind of stuff, right? Um, mm-hmm. What you often also do is you're it's also a lot of investigation because uh, it may be yeah. that it runs fine, but you already can feel or already can see some problematic um, things coming up where, let's say, um, there's just too many objects or something like that, right? There's too mm-hmm. many objects being placed in the world. And it's getting to the point where if you're later in production, let's say a month or three from now, where even more assets need to be placed in the world, how are you going to make place for those assets? So a lot of it is also done a lot earlier in the process to see like, um, you can also kind of cut it up in, in multiple like places. So you have the performance profiling for the CPU, specifically for draw uh, drawing stuff, right? And then you have for the GPU, which is specifically, um, yeah. let's say, the, the cost of individual draw calls or the cost of certain passes, let's say shadow pass or base pass or um, the global illumination system, that kind of stuff, right? Um, VFX too, yeah. Yeah, VFX, that kind of stuff. Um, and a lot of stuff you're looking at is also very system systematic. Um, if you're using a very heavy global illumination system throughout the early parts of your development, uh, you may at some point find out that, yeah, we actually need to dial this back a bit because like, we need more assets to be in this world. We need more like performance to be, be available for this stuff. Uh, maybe you worked in the beginning with the idea that at some point you're going to have a shader that is going to be really expensive. That's going to give like a really cool effect. Um, then you need to make place for that effect to happen as well, right? Uh, so you're constantly tweaking or like looking at where can we maybe squeeze out a little bit more, preferably without sacrificing noticeable image quality. Uh, if you or like if we're going to lose image quality, how can we lose it in such a way that it's at least visible to the player? Uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, I'd say it's a very much a balance. And oh, yeah. there's also uh, during production, there's a lot of um, kind of monitoring the kind of the assets that are going in, the, the VFX and everything, and seeing if it if any of it goes over limit, um, and yep. seeing like before it's even placed in the world, do we need to actually dial this back? Do we need to uh, cut it in half? Or uh, if we have hundred of these, are are these going to cause a problem and stuff like that? Yep. Especially with stuff like, um, let's say they made an asset in a certain way that is not the most optimal. And if they worked at the, on it a little bit differently, they, you could still use the same asset with the same quality, but mm-hmm. place thousands of them without having a like, very noticeable impact of performance. Well, currently you have maybe a few, few hundred or maybe a few tens. Uh, it's it really like... It really depends, I guess. Also stuff, um, so one of those paradigms, right? So you have the, the CPU side, which is often uh, gathering all the objects in the world that are in the view for them and, and 
pushing those to the GPU, sorting them, doing culling beforehand, all that kind of stuff. That is a lot of work because you're looking at how maybe you have a lot of instances that just can't be batched very efficiently together. Then you need to find ways to change uh, the whole workflow around assets to maybe be able to nudge that in the right direction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the GPU, of course, which must be vertex shader and pixel shader work. At least for the draw calls, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So lots of different things working together. Yep. And that's not even speaking about like streaming, like both. Gosh, yeah. Both. That's a whole other piece. Yeah. <laughs> Especially on like lower hardware where CPU, like streaming, yes. you have streaming from memory to the CPU. So it's accessible for, let's say, uh, physics or uh, what other stuff is being gameplay, uh, that kind of stuff, right? Uh, getting all that stuff in memory and having enough memory to work with it and maybe managing the memory is a whole topic on its own. And then for mm-hmm. rendering, that's a whole separate memory like topic on its own almost, where you need to load in and, like a lot of textures, a lot of objects, and me- need to fit them together there just well enough to render everything in the draw call, because otherwise the draw call can take quite a bit longer. Yeah, I need to have yeah. them all optimized and uh, yep. well, well done, so it all kind of streams in and out, and they have to be correctly uh, broken up as well, so... It doesn't like stall or give you hitches and yep. yeah, uh, it's a whole can of worms. Especially for open world games, is a is a oh. pretty difficult. Yeah. Low map, low mid map resolutions, right? Yeah, or yeah. objects <laughs> popping in because they're not they didn't fit in the current frame. Mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff. Certainly, is a lot of parts to it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I think now that. Uh, all of our viewers or listeners have had their uh, their brains filled to capacity. We'll <laughs> we'll give them, we'll go to some Patreon questions. All right. Let me just uh, bring up some things. Okay, so we have a load of them, so we'll we'll see how many we can get through. Um, we don't often have this many, but clearly people are excited about tech. <laughs> Great. That's this yeah. first one from Rome. Um, so he's asking how. You know how how would you get started in tech art as an environment artist? Um, kind of looking at techie things, it seems quite overwhelming. Um, but how how can you kind of get yourself into the more technical side? I would say definitely um, the way I started is just kind of explore the easy kind of shaders and very simple kind of tech tar- tasks that you can do. So optimization and little shaders and uh, little maybe. Try some blueprints. You don't have to like dive into them fully, um, but it's all about just kind of learning a little bit and seeing if you like it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, like um, learning how to use parallax occlusion mapping, for example. Right? It, it sounds mm-hmm. because it's already made for you, but just learning how to use it and then learning how you can maybe tweak it a little bit. Uh, that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You could even like copy someone else's shader and see like you could oh, yeah. tweak the little values and see what happens. I think that's a great way to learn, really. Yeah, definitely. Um, and just going through the graph, right? Just opening mm-hmm. the graph, looking at all the nodes, how they work together. Maybe play some, um, uh, like, do the preview thing to see how it 
acts. Yeah. So that's not always as useful, but it works in some cases. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, one, one thing you probably want to learn early on is stuff like um, math, just because it helps you so much with like understanding yeah. what's happening. I actually do think that Unreal makes it really easy to learn math. I think there's actually a, a sample app, right? I never will. Confuse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think there's uh, Unreal. One of the um, if you have to sit the the I think what's the project called? Is it just sample project? I think yeah, it's called I think sample it's just project. Sample, yeah. Yeah. Like and one of the levels in there is basically just a large like corridor yeah. with all the different kind of math math uh, operations and also combinations of them. And there you can get a really like low level um, feel for what math does in a shader in different contexts and all that kind of stuff. I actually learned a lot of math from that. Uh, definitely yeah, recommend going after that one. Not to scare people, but it, it gets really fun. Uh, yeah. Once you kind of understand how it works in like a 3D space and how you can use it to make like really cool effects, then I think it's it's a really fun subject to delve into. It's not like math in school. Yeah. Because you can actually see the visual results, right? Like math in yeah, school is yeah. often like plot this this few points in this graph, and then you're doing that, and you're like, nice, I've drew a line. <laughs> very, <laughs> very impressive. Uh, but now you're actually like wow. folding objects in each other and then maybe doing whole like a lot of maybe stuff like um what did I do lately? I, I, I helped someone making beach sand, like the, um, the intersection of where water hits the beach. And then oh, from nice. there, where the, like, um, the wet sand begins, where the sand begins, like the normal sand begins, where the dunes begin, all that kind of stuff, right? You can get this whole gradient and then segment it in different parts, maybe tweak it a little bit with some noise. Uh, and, and this whole like the math behind it and even more complex stuff than that is, is at some point you're at least for me I, i'm kind of looking for the challenges yeah. <laughs> somebody comes to me and i'm like oh i'm gonna try i'm gonna try using some math in this one <laughs> yes finally i get to do something fun <laughs> yeah also with the optimization actually a lot of uh shader optimization is actually doing stuff that is normally done in a single function but mm-hmm replacing it with uh, just a simple math or a set of math instructions to to get the same result. Because GPUs are incredibly fast at, at doing math. Yep. Nice. So TZLR, math. Yeah. <laughs> math and, yes. and just play around with, with shaders and uh, yeah. stuff like RVTs is also a fun one. You can get some really cool stuff for that. Um, make some grass. Make some grass. Uh, Blending objects with the terrain, that kind of stuff. If you want to learn how to set up RVT systems in Unreal Engine, Nina has a blog post about it. I do. Ah, (laughs) Thank you. you, I use that to set mine up. Hey. (laughs) I referenced it in my article. (laughs) Amazing. Um, We have a question from Angelo. He's actually asked a bunch, but I'm only going to let him have one. Um, So he's asked, what, what does a... Uh, tech artist portfolio look like and how does that kind of change with seniority? Good question. Yeah, that's... I guess a junior tech artist does more of the, like... um, They work more on... 
like finer grained workflow tools, right? So uh, an artist may have, walk into an issue and they need a quick tool to to help them fix this issue or um, like improve their workflow for this issue because otherwise they can't get their stuff done in time. Mm-hmm. That's, I guess, stuff that the junior uh, tech artist does more. A senior tech artist looks more at the bigger picture, I would say. They do like systemic, larger scale things. Maybe the engine, uh, maybe they, or maybe some engine programmer added a whole new like system to the engine for, well, let's say creating uh, clouds, uh, like Unreal did. Uh, And what you see then is that the senior technical artists are often working with those people to create the whole, like, how do artists use this new system? Part the interface between the art and the 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 system engineer, right? I think they work more on on the the larger scale kind of topics. Yeah, I'd say I it probably you... also changes in the same way that an artist's changes, right? In which the more senior you get, the less stuff you have in your portfolio, but the more stuff you have in your CV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Yeah, it's about knowledge as well. I mean, I work with a pretty small team, so we're all kind of equally divided, but uh, it's definitely like the the senior tech artist does a lot more of those overarching huge pieces that kind of touch every part of the project. That's a good answer to that one. Um, It's, uh, yeah, I think it's it's an interesting point, isn't it, about like the more senior you get, the less your portfolio, the content of your portfolio is, is... It's not unimportant, but I guess like the... the... Yeah, it's going to start mattering less, I I guess. Uh, It's more about like, at some point you have worked on certain titles and they may have already seen what you've done. Uh, Mm. And then, yeah, yeah, I I guess a lot of companies just look at that more than your actual portfolio. From what I've seen, a lot of technical artists, uh, at least like senior technical artists on their portfolio have a lot of stuff that wouldn't necessarily be very useful. For well, also for junior, by the way, uh, would it be very useful for actual production stuff? But just because they found it fun to work on it, right? It's more like fun projects that are that don't really make sense in an actual like production environment. But it's just fun and it tests their their knowledge and it tests their capabilities, that kind of stuff. Maybe they learned a new like algorithm or a new tool or new software or that kind of stuff with it. Yeah, I guess that's what you see more with technical artists when they get more senior. Yeah, same reason I have a million fish in mine. <laughs> <laughs> Just fun. I guess you got to you got to do what you enjoy. It's similar yep. to like if you're if you're making environment content because you think it's what's you know uh, wanted or expected, you're yeah. probably going to end up with something pretty bland as opposed to someone making something out of you know the passion of doing it we have i'm going to do one more question there are some more but we're going to do the one more gold panda has asked this might be quite a big one but hopefully we can scope it down a bit he's asked where do you see the evolution of tech art in the future with software like ue5 and houdini shaping the horizon well we already see a lot of these tools being used at the moment right uh, especially houdini it's being uh yeah it's very much being a fair like a larger role, especially since it can automate it, automates a lot of stuff so much, like asset creation or 
processing of assets, at least in the, the, the 3D environment or a 3D, well, 3D environment art uh, side. You can send the geometry or a whole section of the world to Houdini, do some scattering or maybe processing of the data or, uh, I don't know, generate a new mesh for nav mesh reasons. I don't know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff, right? You have a lot of control in what you can do. Um, and you can tweak it very easily. It's a very iterative process because if, let's say, level design suddenly needs to change a certain part of the level and art needs to be updated for it, then you can do that. You are flexible enough to to, to use uh, Houdini to automate a little bit of that stuff for you. It, it does need some extra setup time, I would say. Like, there's a technical mm -hmm. artist probably working maybe a month, maybe two months to just create that, that tool um, to get it perfect or get it at least to such a state that it is uh, that's good enough for the whole process that they require in their production pipeline. Nice. All right. Well, that sounds like a good point to, to wrap it up then. Um, so thank you very much to Nina and Kai for joining us to talk about tech art. Hopefully everyone listening learned some new things. Um, Thank you guys for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for Luan being here, helping oh, me host. You're welcome. Actually, Luan, mm -hmm. do you have a bonus question before I finish signing off? Well, you see, I did think about this. <clears throat> and obviously, we both know here Nina's love for fish, little <laughs> fishes. So yes. <laughs> I actually would like to know from Nina, and then Kai, I've got another question for you. Oh. What your least liked fish is? Oh, least <laughs> liked. Hmm. Yeah, five seconds. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> you don't you have any time you want. Uh, probably one of the fish that's kind of just very boring looking, and it's uh, people fish up all the time, like cod like or something. Like a salmon. No, salmon are cute. Okay. They're, they're very colorful. Yeah, <laughs> they have a little... yeah. They're, yeah, they're, they're scary, very man. pretty, and they swim a lot. They swim like half an ocean. They like, do, every... uh, and and they climb like waterfalls. Yeah, yeah that's, the, that's the cool thing. They're, they're pretty badass, to be honest. Yeah. So they, a cod, like, cod is like just boring. And people yeah. fish it up, and it's just, <laughs> it's brown. That's I true. Guess. Brown is pretty boring. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and now for Kai, what's your least liked reptile? Oh, uh, um, what's my least liked reptile? I would say a gecko. Gecko, really? Yeah. But they lick wow. their like eyes. They go but, but that, well, that's the disgusting part. <laughs> that's great. <gasps> They're so cute. Yeah. Uh, I do have to give them that. They are kind of cute. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe the what? What is the one that that? Um, the Jesus, um, it just it runs over water, right? That's this whole, how do you call it, uh, Dracula or this whole thing around his head, the, the fence. Kind of looks no like idea. a dinosaur from, um, oh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah, 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 yeah. from a Jurassic Park that kills the, 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 the guy with the glasses. Okay, then, and that, <laughs> and that now that we have the information, <laughs> what would win in a fight, the cod or the Jurassic Park dinosaur looking thing. The cod. The cod? <laughs> you would say? Wow. 
Mm. I don't know. <laughs> like the Jurassic Park dinosaur looking thing. It can run over water. Yeah. And it runs really oh, fast. Damn. Yeah. The cod's brown, though. Yeah, the cod can like, <laughs> swim really fast, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's kind of, can it swim faster than. I don't know, actually know how fast they run. <laughs> let, let's Google it. How fast can cod swim? Very fast. Apparently, <clears throat> two to five centimeters. Speeds of minimum two to five centimeters, maximum of twenty-one to fifty-four centimeters per second. Or per second. Okay, I got twelve kilometers an hour for this. Uh, oh damn! I don't know what they're. Uh, let's say Jesus reptile. I don't know exactly how they they're called. <laughs> It's the Basiliscus Basiliscus. Wow, that's Basiliscus Basiliscus. Yeah, wow. Okay. When they run out of second names. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Excellent. That was my bonus, Tim. The, <laughs> the deed is done. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Slipped it in there at the end. All right. Well, thank you everyone at home for listening in. Um, and yeah, thank you once again for our guests for joining us. Thank you to Luan. And if you guys at home want to get more EXP goodness, head on over to the website to read some articles or come chat with us on Discord or go and take out one of the new mentorships, um, get some some awesome one-on-one -on -one training with some of the fantastic artists there. Um, other than that, until next time, have a good one, take care, stay shiny, and uh, have a wonderful month, day, whatever. Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> bye everyone bye bye, bye.